This is LaborWave Radio. LaborWave Radio is an independent podcast supported by our Patreon subscribers. So if you enjoy our show, we encourage you to go to patreon.com backslash LaborWave and become a patron. You can also support the show in non-monetary ways by giving us ratings and reviews on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. We're joined in this episode with Sarah Jaffe, the author of the recent book, Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone, published by Bold Type Books. The book came out January 26th. You can get a hard copy today and also enter a sweepstakes to possibly win a copy of the book and a tote bag. You're told that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But as Sarah Jaffe shows in her book, Doing what you love is a recipe for exploitation, creating a new tyranny of work in which we cheerily acquiesce to doing jobs that take over our lives. We discuss the themes of the book, the downsides when punk rock is created by trust fund kids, and what love might look like in a world free of capitalist forms of work. Highly encourage listeners to get a copy right away. Also, check out the work of Sarah Jaffe. She's an excellent labor reporter with articles published in The Nation, Dissent, Jacobin Magazine, In These Times, honestly, any left-wing labor press. You could probably find articles by Sarah Jaffe. And listen to our podcast, which is Belabored Podcast with co-host Michelle Chen. We have a series of upcoming episodes, including a cross-collaboration with the One Big Podcast, the official podcast of the Ypsilanti IWW, and a series of discussions on Kim Moody's The Rank and File Strategy in our next edition of Comrades Read. That and more coming up on LaborWave, and hope you enjoy this episode. Sarah Jaffe. Welcome to Labor Wave. Thank you for coming back to the show. Hello. I'm happy to be back here. At the time of this recording, we're waiting one more week for your book to officially launch and be published. January 26th is the date that I have written down. Yep, that's that's when it should be arriving in people's mailboxes if they pre-ordered and uh, will be available at bookstores if such things are open where you live. Probably not by the time it comes out. But Oh, God. Yeah, I know. So I love the title right off the bat, Work Won't Love You Back. I want to jump right into what the, you know, the core argument of the book about the labor of love myth. But I thought really quickly for our listeners, it would be good to just read the back of the book. It provides a succinct summary. All right. So in Work Won't Love You Back, our guest Sarah Jaffe examines the labor of love myth, the idea that certain work is not really work and therefore should be done at a passion through the lives of workers from the unpaid intern to the overworked teacher to the tech worker and even the professional athlete. As Jaffe argues, understanding the labor of love trap will empower us to work less and demand what our labor is really worth. And once freed from those binds, we can finally figure out what actually gives us joy and satisfaction. So it's an ambitious book. (laughs) Yeah, um, I had the idea for this book like like while I was working on the first book and it took me a while to sort of figure out how to write it, you know, because you're just like, oh my God, there's the entire world is here. Like I, you know, I literally start the book going back to like the beginning of human history. No big. I'm also not a historian. So um, mistakes are entirely my not having any training in being a historian. But like, yeah, it was, it was a inspired obviously by like experiences of my own life. And also having been a labor reporter for a while, hearing the same versions of the same story over and over again from workers in really different and distinct fields. So when you start hearing the same thing from like 
Um, I remember doing this interview with freelance reality TV producers who were organizing with the Writers Guild back in like 2010, who were telling me like broadly similar stuff to what I was hearing from like fast food workers. And so when you start to hear like this narrative, you're like, okay, something is going on here. And I think it's different than the narrative about work that we used to hear, or we didn't, I haven't been alive that long, but like from like the, what my mother probably heard when she was growing up. And that is the labor of love myth that is like the core theme throughout this book. So one thing that really struck me is how malleable this myth is, depending on what type of job you're doing, what industry you're in. So can you talk just more about like, what is the labor of love myth and how is it so able to kind of adapt itself to its particular needs? When, like I said, I had a hard time trying to think for a long time about how to structure and write this book. And I finally came around to like, okay, one half of this story is rooted in care work, in the work that women have been expected to sort of naturally do since again, like literally kind of early, early human history. And the other half is rooted in sort of the way we talk about artists and like the starving artist and this whole narrative of a certain kind of creative work, not being work at all, but being something that you do outside of your real job or for a passion or, you know, it, you're starving and living in a garret and, and whatever. And like all of our romantic narratives of the tortured genius, I just started watching The Queen's Gambit last night. So I'm, I'm like freshly thinking about tortured geniuses. The way that I wrote the book ends up being like in two parts. Part one is starts with women's unpaid work in the home and moves through paid domestic work, teaching, retail work, and nonprofit labor and organizing, which I imagine some of your listeners know all about. And then in the second half, I start with art and then unpaid internships, academia, tech, and sports. And so to think about like, what are some industries. And I tried to choose like industries that are growing, that are prevalent, that we hear a lot about. Um, and also obviously industries where workers are, are organizing and doing a lot of things. So like teachers are in a lot of ways, sort of the ultimate laborers of love, but also like, you know, in the U S at least, and also starting to be in the UK, like teachers are really the forefront of the labor movement and really changing the way we think and talk about organizing. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do this, to sort of pick again, a variety of types of work that demonstrate different but similar ways this narrative grew and expanded. And then you can sort of in those chapters, see the ways it can apply to different kinds of work as well, or at least I hope you can. <laughs> and like, there are other things that I didn't put in there. I really wanted to have a nurse's chapter. And we sort of decided that the nurse's chapter and the teacher's chapter would cover a lot of the same points. So I ended up writing a feature story on nurses for the nation instead that sort of covers a lot of the ground that a chapter in the book would have, that that should be coming out um, fairly soon, I hope. I have to do edits on it this week. You're busy. <laughs> yeah, no spare time. What is spare time? Yeah, and so to think about like what we see when these narratives migrate from different kinds of work to different kinds of work. So what is it about retail work that takes its narrative from women's unpaid work in the home. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, every time I do these interviews, I just end up re um, recommending like 12 other books. So the first one I'm going to do won't be the last is Bethany Morton's book to serve God in Walmart, which is just one of the best labor histories I've ever read. And I read a lot of labor history and she details the way that like the Walton family when, you know, Sam Walton started his first five and dime store 
what happened was they were in a part of the country in the Ozarks where most people had been farmers, where the people that he was hiring to work in these first stores were sort of farm housewives who had never done wage labor before. And their moms hadn't done wage labor and their grandmas hadn't done wage labor. And nobody, you know, going back however long had done wage labor. And so they didn't really expect a lot in terms of wages. The family farm probably paid most of the bills and they were picking up some money on the side maybe. Um, Or at least that's the image that allows them to pay very little. But they got very good at paying lip service to these women and their sort of Christian service ethic. And so this thing that allowed the Walton company, uh, I was just reading the other day that um, the Walton family got like $25 billion, billion with a B, dollars richer during the pandemic. And that's, you know, $25 billion richer. They already had 200 and something billion dollars. That is all based on this ethic that these women brought to the wage labor workforce from what they had done at home and in their church and in their community for free because they actually cared about people. And so, you know, in a very real way, like Walmart and a lot of the retail stores that have, you know, sprung up in its image or tried to emulate it in order to not go out of business, its entire fortune is built on women caring about other people. Well, and you do a really good job at representing this kind of sexist trope around care work that basically poses that women are intrinsically and just innately caring individuals, right? So because they're caring individuals, this doesn't actually work for them. This is just what they would be doing in any society. Right. And that is, I mean, A, right, it's sexist. Um, It, among other things, sort of implies that men are not caring, which allows, you know, frankly, men to get away with murder. But it also implies that, like, that caring isn't a skill. That like emotional labor, you know, Arlie H- Russell Hochschild's definition of emotional labor, I really stress that like it's about producing emotions in someone else. That's what emotional labor is actually about. So again, those women at Walmart are there, they are producing good feelings about Walmart by giving you good service. So then you're like, oh, the lady at Walmart was so sweet. I'll go back there because, you know, I feel good about this. Even if you don't think about it that consciously. The good feelings that are produced in you, maybe it's not Walmart. It's probably not Walmart these days. But like the indie record store you might go to or the neighborhood bookstore where I hope you will buy my book. Um, That kind of thing, it relies on you feeling good about it. And that's this sort of nebulous thing that you can't, that's hard to quantify. And therefore, it's really easy to undervalue. And that kind of thing. So I, I was just writing an article about the idea that like affect is a source of surplus value, which is something that I heard um, British media scholar Marcus Gilroy wear say in an interview recently. And yeah, like think about the way Facebook generates data sort of like button click by like button click. And though we can think about those as like micro units of labor, right? Like Amazon has sort of with the mechanical Turk, it's broken down jobs already into micro tasks that people get a couple of pennies for doing maybe. But that is sort of an an admission if we think about it in that way, that like everything we're doing on all of these sites, you know, I have my Gmail window open and somewhere in one of these 8 million tabs is probably some social media site or other. And all of those are, are only able to generate money if we use them if we continue to click on them and click on the ads and, and interact with them and give them more information. 
And so that is, in a certain way, unpaid work we're doing, right? We're producing something for these companies. We are producing value for these companies. It's just been disguised as something that's fun. And like, that's also the logic that these workplaces rely on if they try to make your job fun, if they're gamification, right? It's one of these big buzzwords. Um, a few years ago, I don't hear as much about gamification now, but it's still going on. I bet some of your listeners have worked in an Amazon warehouse and like the, the games on the, uh, the picker games and stuff like that, or like Uber has tried to gamify work for Uber. The idea that like, if we can make it fun, therefore it's not work and therefore we don't have to pay you as much because you're being paid in something else. You're getting some nebulous sort of feeling reward instead of, you know, the real reward we need because we can't pay the rent. I'm just thinking about my own experiences in some of these types of work that you write about. Actually, I count it four different industries. Four uh, different jobs that you've had and just that one rant that I did? Well, no, in the book specifically, the chapters that there's, I've worked in four of those industries. Which four? Retail is one of them, nonprofits, uh, academia, Mm -hmm. kind, kind of teaching. That one is a little bit more of a loose fit. Well, that's probably me just internalizing the idea that it wasn't real work, but mm-hmm. see, there's also a lot of external enforcement mechanisms for performing this type of emotional labor you're talking about. When I was bartending and working in retail, the management team was desperate about curating really positive Yelp reviews. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I was like on the chopping block because somebody got really mad at me specifically. I can't oh, no. I when I was bartending and wrote a terrible review by name. So what what other kinds of mechanisms exist that impose this type of order on workers, like that insist that they need to love their job and that reinforce it? Yeah, so it's interesting because there are some researchers who have done a really good job, here's why I recommend more books, of looking at the management literature and like the development of this narrative in management literature. I tried to do mine from the point of view of of workers and sort of the material conditions that changed for workers to see these things spread. But like Kathy Weeks wrote an article not that long ago for the Verso blog, um, something along the lines of the romance of work, where she looked at the management literature. Jamie McCallum's recent book, Worked Over, he looks at the management literature and a book that I, you know, stole a framework from Luke Boltansky and Eve Chappello's The New Spirit of Capitalism, which was written in the late 90s. But that looks, again, at at the way that as we change from an industrial economy to the the sort of post-industrial economy we have in the U.S. and Western Europe, some other places, and what sort of motivations have changed and how those have spread. And again, they're looking largely at management literature. So reading what people are being taught in MBA programs and, and garbage like that, <laughs> like, to see what has changed about the way that people are being taught to sort of motivate their workforce. And so like this is, this is sort of very explicit in a lot of places that we're being told that we should find fulfillment on the job. And that was different from what you were told if you went to work um, in GM's Lordstown factory as a member of the UAW. In 1966, when Lordstown opened, right, you were not particularly expected to like it. You were just supposed to do it anyway. Sort of like what my dad told me about doing my math homework when I was a kid. Um, I hate it. Don't care. You have to do it. That was that was sort of the story, though, right? It's like, you do it. You got to do it. Why do you have to do it? Because you will make money. 
Like that was also the narrative that my dad told me about my math homework, right? If you get good grades and you'll get into a good school and then you get a good job. And then when you turn 40, you'll be a communist labor journalist. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't like that part, but the way that, you know, you were motivated to go take a crappy job. I mean, first of all, you know, because like capital enclosed the commons and there was no way for you to make a living except for becoming a wage laborer. And then, you know, wage labor requires you to work in order to eat. And then, you know, I spend a lot of time in the first chapter because I think this is really important on the history of the poor laws and the poor law tradition and how that's shaped like American welfare reform, for example. And yet another book recommendation, Francis Fox Piven and um, Richard Cloward's book, Disciplining the Poor, is all about this tradition and this history. And of course, Fran and Richard were welfare rights organizers. And they really dug into this history in order to think about the way that these laws were disciplining working class women who were receiving welfare payments and thinking about what is work, what isn't work, how, you know, essentially the narrative of welfare reform that Bill Clinton eventually gave us with, you know, the help of Newt Gingrich and company. That narrative is in a lot of ways, like, oh, these women will find meaning if they have wage labor. You know, they sort of ripped off this argument from feminism also, which is screwed up. Like second wave feminism has a lot to answer for on this front because, you know, okay, women need to work. Suddenly women need to work. Um, Or rather suddenly like black women have always been expected to work. And when it became possible for black women to actually access welfare, which had been accessible for many, many years for white women. Suddenly the idea that like black women weren't working was horrifying. Where does that come from? The history of slavery. You know, there, there are, there are these really sort of culturally specific narratives that also are global and international. Certainly, you know, most of Europe also has narratives based in slavery because they were the ones responsible for it. And they become common sense in the sort of Gramscian sense of common sense, which is to say something that's probably wrong, but that we we sort of believe at some level, or at least we act as if we believe it. And that's different from you know what Gramsci called good sense, which is actually being right and understanding the way the world works. Yeah. And so, you know, the labor of love has in that way become common sense in all of these different ways, through all of these different material sort of disciplining forces from the poor laws to the management literature of the 1990s to welfare reform to, you know, whatever garbage they're trying to pass through Congress right now. Something I wanted our listeners to know about your book is that it's set up in a really interesting way in that it provides a very sweeping historical summary of the development of work under capitalism. It's really thick. You said earlier you're not a historian, but you you don't have to say that because I think you can trick people into believing so. It's Will very- somebody give me an honorary PhD? <laughs> <laughs> but you you enter into each of these chapters through the lived experience of particular people that do the work. And I was just curious if you'd be willing to talk about how did you find or how did you decide who to choose to represent these types of work? As well as like, you know, maybe share some of the stories of the people that you talk to in the book. Oh, my God. So I'm kind of in love with all of them. Um, They're the best. And yeah, and some of this credit for this goes to my wonderful and amazing editor, Katie O'Donnell, who was like, we should focus on one worker 
to embed these chapters in and really go deep with one worker so that people can actually sort of feel what it's like to do this work rather than have a couple of stories and draw them together. Like I did in my first book is like really go deep with one person. And I think it works out pretty well, even though, you know, it's impossible to sort of tell the breadth of stories of this industry through one person. It is possible to give a sense of what it feels like to be someone who does that work. And I, I wanted them all to be people who were organizing, not just, you know, this is somebody who works at this job and here are the sad things that have happened to them because they work in this job. But here's how they're actually trying to change it. Because of course, you know, Marx, right? Um, it's, uh, the point is to change it. The point is not just to interpret it. So I found a lot of them through reporting that I was doing on organizing, right? Like the Los Angeles teacher strike. I went to LA to cover the teacher strike, which was exactly two years ago. I was in LA on a picket line. I actually looked it up in my picture, you know, Google photos giving me a whatever. Here are your memories from two years ago. Um, two years ago, I was in the rain outside the home of one of the members of the LA Unified School District's school board members with a bunch of people protesting. I was wearing a poncho that somebody gave me because I did not pack for Los Angeles thinking it was going to rain for four days straight. It did. And I met Rose. I met a ton of teachers and many of whom would have been amazing characters, but I sort of asked some people who would be the person I should talk to. And Amy Schur from ACE, which is the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, which is one of the many community organizations that was working alongside the teachers union. She suggested Rosa. And she was like, you have to meet Rosa Jimenez. She's amazing. And I did meet Rosa and she was amazing in a picket line and pouring down rain outside of the RFK community school campus, which is in Koreatown, actually not that far from the actual UTLA building. And she sort of had this experience of teaching that spanned the sort of crisis times, right? She was hired, she got one year in of teaching and then was laid off after the 2008 financial crisis. So she got involved with a bunch of young teachers who were organizing around that and around the layoffs. Then she teaches at this community school, which is sort of an example of the thing that the UTLA and many other teachers are, are talking about building um, as schools that really include the demands of parents in the community and the students that try to teach like relevant curricula to the students that they have, that teach in multiple languages, and that try to be more than just a school, but a place where the community actually feels safe and welcomed and involved. And she's an activist. She organizes with the students um, in a group called Students Deserve. Like she just was on all of these levels, this super incredibly engaged organizing machine. And then we're sitting in the hallway of the building on the fourth day of the strike because every room in the UTLA building is occupied with meetings and strategy and all this stuff is happening. So Rosa and I sit down in the hallway, I have this whole conversation. And at the end of it, I ask her, I was like, what has it been like for you being out on strike this week? And she's just like, she's like, I realize that it's okay that this is for me. And we both sort of started crying because I was just like, oh my God, that, that, yes, you. Like the teachers unions have done such a good job of turning the labor of love narrative around to be part of their organizing that they can still sort of get lost in that sometimes because it does, it is really important to them to say like our demands, our working conditions or our students' learning conditions 
our demands will make this better for the entire school district, for the entire city of Los Angeles. But also she's like, I am a single mom and this is hard for me. And it's okay that I need a raise that I'm in this expensive city that's getting more expensive every day. And like, it's okay to make demands for me too. So that's one, not that I have favorites because they're all incredible. Kevin, who's a video game programmer that is part of the first or one of the first video game workers unions in the UK, Games Workers UK, which is part of IWGB, Independent Workers of Great Britain. I met Kevin and a bunch of other workers at an organizing meeting that I went to. Um, A friend of mine had put me in touch with some of the folks that organized with them. And he just had this great story and also was just really funny. So like I was trying to decide which of those workers that I wanted to go a little bit deeper with. And like looking back over my transcription from the first interview, I was like, oh my God, but he's really funny. And also, you know, talked about being like a person of color in this industry that is just like absolutely overwhelmingly dominated by white guys. Um, And that being an important motivator for his organizing, not just, and we're seeing this again with like the Google union. It's not even primarily in a lot of those cases about wages, it's about respect and it's about hours. It's about like putting a maximum cap on the amount of hours you can be expected to work when you're, you know, they call it crunch, when you're crunching to get the game out on time. And this is, you know, just a notorious thing across the industry and across programming in general, but video games in particular is just really, really bad. And I thought, Video games, I mean, A, there was an actual union of video games programmers, which was great. And then games seemed like the the sort of perfect labor of love part of the tech industry, whatever the hell we mean by the tech industry. It's such a weird thing to say. Um, isn't all industry about tech? But it was, it's very specific, right? You love video games. So you go to a special school and most of the people that I talked to had gone to a special school and Kevin was saying, right, he's from Germany. He could have gone to university for free in Germany, but instead he went to this special school for games programming that charged 25,000 euros, I think, a year. So, you know, right from the jump, they're like, oh, but you really want to do this because you love video games. And then at some point, you know, he starts laughing and he's like, I don't even play video games anymore. Yeah. So that's just a couple. I mean, I, I, there are 10 people in it. I, I, stories on how I met them all can probably take up the remainder of your podcast. Pausing now for a brief musical break and a reminder that Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by subscribers on our Patreon. So we encourage you to become a subscriber today at patreon.com backslash labor wave. Here's a clip of music from Ty Vec off their album Origin of What from In the Red Records.
I love the stories too. And I do love the kind of agency that's represented in the stories. It makes me think of another thing that strikes me about your book is that at least in how I read it, it is dripping in indignation, like throughout there's all of what informs the book to me seems to be a very consistent indignation over how capitalism has wrecked our ability to actually do things that we love. Yeah. Right. And that could be work. And maybe to ask you more personal questions, but you seem to really straddle that experience a lot. <gasps> yeah. I mean, the first words in the book, right. Or I love my work, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, and I partly did that because I knew the first thing that people were going to say who got like indignant about this book. And, you know, some of them have said this to me, like, well, what do you want people to do? Like just do jobs they hate. And I'm like, no, like I, I much prefer being a journalist to waiting tables, which I did for quite a long time. Absolutely. Like, I don't think you should just, you know, decide. I don't think the answer is like, just decide to do work that you hate because I just don't think the answer is about your feelings. I think the answer is about power and power is something that you can have in a limited degree as an individual, right? Like I am a person who has now written two books that does give me like some name recognition, which does translate into some individual level bargaining power, right? That I have that I didn't have you know, 12 years ago when I was just finishing journalism school. That's definitely a thing you can have. I don't want to say that that's like impossible to have. But we have much more bargaining power as an industry, as, you know, freelance journalists organizing alongside staff journalists who are organizing. Um, One of the great things about a lot of the journalists who have organized as unions of staff writers is that they've put concern for freelancers into some of their contracts, which is great. Thank you all. I love you. But that like, all of us have to understand that this is an industry. And again, like to, I could definitely have had a chapter about journalism in this book. I didn't want to write about myself. I write about myself a little bit in the introduction and a little bit in the conclusion, but that's kind of it. But journalism is an industry that was built on sort of the partisan press where, you know, you would have had back in the day when they wrote the constitution to give postal subsidies to the press, essentially. This was really important to these guys who had just fought a revolution, a lot of whom had been publishers of, you know, partisan broadsheets and, and things. That's how they, you know, organized a revolution. Not to romanticize them, a lot of them were slave-owning monsters. But like this was something that was built into the post office, which is in the Constitution, which is not true in most other I hate the term advanced democracies. I don't know what the hell we should use instead because that just implies a lot of things. But nevertheless, this is something that goes way back. And and so subsidies for the press go way back, which is to say that the journalism industry in this country has always been publicly funded. It's just usually been funded through tax breaks. Then you get in the little more than 100 years ago or so, you get the idea of the objective newspaper, which is essentially just to sell more. So it's not because objective reporting is like scientific something, something, some enlightenment wank about how, you know, it's the search for truth. It's just literally so that you don't piss off one half of your readership. It's to have a bigger audience than the partisan press could. So the New York Times sells more copies in Jacobin or than the Weekly Standard because there's theoretically a bigger audience for nonpartisan news. And then it's, it's you know, op-ed pages are supposedly balanced. The New York Times aside, you know, every town would have a newspaper and that newspaper would have staff reporters. And that would be a job that didn't require you to have gone to Yale and worked five unpaid internships to get. 
you, you know, probably went to the local state school and you got a job and you were a journalist and you were a journalist in your community. And as that model has died and been consolidated and all of these other things that we could talk about forever, there's, you know, ongoing fights among journalist unions at sort of legacy papers that still exist that they're trying to kill in places like Pittsburgh and Toledo right now. Those die. And instead, what happens is like people like me who, you know, I'm not from New York. I ended up here because that was where you could get a journalism job. And I had to go to grad school and take two unpaid internships or one unpaid internship and one very low paid internship that has since become um, better paid because the interns organized at the Nation magazine. Thank you. That wasn't the way you got into journalism all that long ago, or at least it wasn't the way you got into most journalism. But now it's become this prestige thing. The pay is shit and you have to live in the most expensive city in the world or one of the most expensive cities in the world. And you have to sort of jump through all of these hoops to prove that you're prestigious enough to do this thing that is a public service. And that, again, not to romanticize the American Constitution, which is in large part a racist piece of garbage, We have recognized since the beginning of this country that this is an important part of having a functioning society. But now it's, as the labor of love, it becomes something that we can sort of do without because it's something you should do out of high-mindedness and blah, blah, blah. And that just means like rich jerks get to do it. And why has labor coverage suffered? I don't know, because none of the people who are doing prestigious journalism have ever worked a day in their lives. No, journalism is work, but you know what I mean. Like, Not that many people at Yale had to wait tables to get through Yale. Fewer have actually done that after graduation when you actually sort of realize, like I did, this might be my life. This degree that I got might actually not do any of the things that, you know, my dad said it would. (laughs) Sorry, dad. It might actually just be true that I'm a waitress. So what do I do about that? It reminds me when I was um, a younger person and willing to make an ass of myself and play punk rock music. As opposed to making an ass of ourselves on a podcast, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally different. Different ways. Um, Different ways. I I just wanted to share this because it's just what you're saying is very uh, similar to how I could never figure out like, why is it that I'm making pizza, you know, working like these menial jobs and like I'm barely scraping by as I'm playing music and all these other people are just coasting. They seem to be totally fine playing in dive bars and like living, living Trust the life. Funds. Yeah. They're all <laughs> fucking rich kids. <laughs> yeah. And what happens to a world though, when like our punk rock is made by rich kids. Yeah. You know, um, there's just like fascinating. I also don't have a chapter on musicians in this book and spoiler alert. I really want to write one. Um, and I had this idea that I wanted to go on tour with like a, a, one of the kinds of bands of which there are most of them that sort of make a living, but they only make a living at the level of like constantly touring, never being home. And that being the way that you can be a full-time musician is you basically killing yourself. But yeah, but like what, right. What is punk rock when it's made by rich people, you know, no offense to arcade fire, but like, (laughs) it's not, (laughs) yeah, I like arcade fire, but like, it's not the same thing as people who are living in squats, you know, back when you could live in a squat on the Bowery and be, you know, Patti Smith or, you know, be the Sex Pistols and go to art school for free in the UK and and make art, right? This wonderful period of 
publicly subsidized arts education for the proles produced this wonderful thing that they have systematically tried to destroy ever since. Like Margaret Thatcher, like was like, no more of you. Because that mattered. Because like music and pop culture can be wonderful places for learning about the world we live in and politics, right? And people call, you know, hip hop, like the, you know, news radio for the ghetto. There's a reason that they've tried to destroy arts funding. And it's not just because conservatives are assholes and they don't want to fund anything, which is also true. But there are very specific things that they basically don't think working class people should have. I am fascinated and obsessed with the period of the first New Deal. Um, Maybe we get a Green New Deal at some point, who knows? Because one of the things that that they funded, that the, the FDR's administration funded, was an arts project. And I knew about that beforehand, right? Most people sort of vaguely know about that. But, you know, I read books about it in researching this book and learned about, like, not just the fact that they paid already well-known and emerging artists to make art and paint murals on the sides of housing projects, as well as in, you know, public offices and museums, but they also paid for community art centers so people could do art. So that you had not just, again, not just like a class of people who were artists who got to make art, but actually anybody got to make art, which sounds amazing, right? Hello, Joe Biden. I hear you want to have a new deal type of thing. Um, This would be great. Of course, I don't have any faith that Joe Biden will do any of this. But this was a thing that, you know, there was a period in time where people actually were able to make art based, funded by the government in their community. Um, And of course, a lot of this comes out of demands of, of organized art workers who were, a lot of them were communists. They were literally in the the Communist Party's John Reed clubs, and they formed what became the Artists' Union, and they demanded government funding. They said, we are also workers who are also out of work, and you also need to create work for us. This was when that and the destruction of Europe's art centers during World War II was what moved sort of the center of the art world to the U.S., we had funded it and we New York wasn't wrecked by Hitler's bombs the way that, you know, Paris and London had been. Well, I wanted to move us in conclusion here to the final chapter of your book that I think in some ways is maybe the most ambitious in that it's trying to identify ways that work actually can be fulfilling and we can actually discover real love. But clearly that's not under capitalism. It's a bit more of an opportunity to be utopian in the book, and I appreciate that. And like, it's very clear, and you say it explicitly in the final chapter, that don't buy into this myth that you can discover love through your work, right? Like, work won't love you back. What do you think it could look like? Like, what types of work might be done in a world where we actually have access to love and we don't have to live under wages? I mean, I think the the thing that I wanted to do in that chapter was like, I didn't want to do what like my buddy Joshua Clover calls 10 chapters of Marx, one chapter of Keynes, and what, you know, Malcolm Harris called Bop It Solutions and his wonderful book Kids These Days, where like they expect you to sort of diagnose the problem in this big sprawling historical fashion, and then like have a list of five policy solutions at the end. And I knew people were going to be pissed about that, but I don't care sure, there are a bunch of policy solutions that are being talked about right now that'd be amazing, like a four-day work week and basic income and all of this shit. And like, hell, during the pandemic, we've even seen some of them enacted, right? We have gotten and are in the process of getting more basic income checks from the government. 
from the Trump administration, for God's sake. So great. Yes, there are all sorts of policy solutions we could talk about. But what I actually wanted to think about is like, okay, what do we do if we don't work? Because that's what people ask all the time, right? Oh, people need work for fulfillment. Well, I don't know, man. If I had some free time, I'd probably do a lot of things that now are work, but don't have to be, right? Knitting that I'm doing right here while we're talking, I took this up as a hobby basically to make myself spend less time scrolling through Twitter on my phone. But it's been, particularly during the pandemic, like really relaxing for me, um, especially in the early days where I like couldn't concentrate enough to read, I would just knit. But it is a job for people, right? Like the sweater that I'm wearing here was, you know, knitted on a machine somewhere by somebody who got paid for it. So, you know, there, there's this line of what is work and what is not work that's blurred and, and crossed and changed all the time. You know, I'm a writer. That's what I do for a living. Um, if I didn't have to work as many hours in a week for a living, I might have written a novel by now or two or three or five. And that would, you know, on some level, yes, it would still be work. It would still be like focused, disciplined activity, but it would actually be something that I was able to choose and really decide whether I enjoyed it and how I wanted to do it. And, you know, thinking about those community art centers, like it didn't matter if what you did in the community art center was like trash, right? Like I, I, I once was on a panel about that we called in defense of bad art with um, art critic Ben Davis and artist Molly Crabapple. And I was saying that, you know, on some level, like the test of whether your society actually cares about these things is like, do people get to make bad art? In other words, can it be something that isn't necessarily a saleable commodity, but something that we just do for the fun of it? Like, you know, my, the sweater that I'm knitting isn't going to be the greatest thing in the world. It's not, I'm working from a pattern. It's not like anything all that exciting, but I like doing it. Nobody's ever going to, you know, hire me to be a knitwear designer, likely, but I enjoy doing it. And, you know, I wrote the, this chapter also about what the thing, the other thing that, that loving your job does is it sort of turns all this affection onto work that we could otherwise spend on other people. Like, and this is, again, I, I'm interested in this dichotomy that sort of comes out of neoliberalism, but also comes out of sort of second wave feminism, that getting a job was sort of posed in a dichotomy to like being in a crappy marriage, basically, being a housewife. Okay, but like, what, what would the world need to look like? So like, marriages weren't crappy anymore. And also, like, you know, for most people who who got most of the women who moved into the waged workforce in the seventies and eighties didn't go into wonderful, fulfilling careers. They went into low wage work. Um, that was in most cases, very similar to the work they'd already been doing unpaid in the home. So what would it look like to actually both like think about, you know, what kind of world will we need that our relationships aren't crap. And that means that like the family as this sort of privatized economic unit can't be the shock absorber for all the garbage that capitalism throws at us. We have to actually have all we need to survive in order for it to not be sort of necessary to end up in these really heteronormative coupled units that like, I'm even madder about this after, you know, nine months of pan nine, God, 11 months of pandemic, because for people who went through lockdown as part of a couple, 
you're sort of forced back into this couple unit where you might have had a vibrant, exciting social life and lots of other people. Now you're basically only allowed to see your partner and maybe your kids if you have them. Um, If you are single, you've just been cooped up alone for a long time. Both of those conditions actually are awful. And like the pandemic is, you know, on some level we can't escape that, but we could have escaped it going on for this long if our governments had given a crap about how we, you know, survive. I argue that in order to think about like how human relationships could be better, we also need free time from work and we also need our basic needs met. Um, That is sort of an old feminist argument, right? That women who are economically dependent on men can never be free. It's just that I don't think the answer to that is therefore get a job. I think the answer to that is what kind of society would actually create freedom for everyone. And in order to do that, like the Combahee River Collective argued, you have to look at the people who are the most exploited. What would it take, they wrote, for Black women to be free? Because if Black women, Black queer women, like most of the writers of the Combahee River Collective statement, if Black queer women were free, then everybody else would have to be free. Because the things that would actually make them free would actually make things better for all of us. Which is why, again, always, forever and ever and ever, read more about the welfare rights movement because they were amazing. And again, a movement of Black women who didn't want to be in in many cases, a traditional family. And they wanted the support and the recognition and the care and sort of honor given to the work they were already doing of raising their children and being, you know, present in their communities. They wanted that to be valued and they didn't want to sort of be forced into crappy relationships with men in order to have a living. I kind of just think all of the answers are found in the welfare rights movement. Yeah, if we think about those demands, really, and they, again, they did make a lot of concrete policy demands, everything from like, the welfare people do not get to come in, look through my underwear drawer, try to determine if I'm having sex, to give us a basic income. And they did demand that, and we almost got it under Richard Nixon, and then it all fell apart. And instead, you know, well, we know what happened to Nixon. This idea that we get fulfillment on the job tells us that if we're not fulfilled by the job, there is something wrong with us. And the the number one thing I want people to take away from this book is like, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you if your job is unfulfilling. Your job is actually designed to be incredibly unfulfilling and to exploit the crap out of you and make somebody else a lot of money. And the best way to change that, even in the short term, is literally still connecting with other people. It's just that in the workplace, we call that a union. The book is called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. It's published by Bold Type Books. Sarah Jaffe, I really appreciate you talking to us. I've really liked your book a lot, and I encourage our listeners to go get a copy as soon as possible. Thank you. Always good to talk to you.